This episode of the Game Changing Attorney Podcast contains explicit content and is intended for mature audiences only. I mean it. This isn't the podcast to listen to with your kids in the car. It is presented unfiltered, and I hope you listen to it with an open mind and an open heart. In family, you struggle, right? Our family was no different. How do you pull someone out of that? How do you get them to want to recover? You can't. That's Brian Cuban, attorney, recovery advocate, and best-selling author. You can't love somebody enough to make them recover. You can't. You have to want it. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Brian Cuban to discuss his personal story of depression, addiction, and redemption, the prevalence of mental health challenges in the legal profession, and how to be an ally to those who are struggling. I finally lost all hope that I would ever look in the mirror and love myself, that I would ever have any kind of future. And I decided I would be doing my family a favor by ending my life by suicide. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Brian Cuban is an attorney who identifies as a person in long-term recovery and is the author of The Addicted Lawyer, Tales of the Bar, Booze, Blow, and Redemption. While many know him as the brother to renowned business mogul Mark Cuban, Brian's story is worth telling in its own right. To really understand how I got to where I was struggling with cocaine and alcohol and suicidal, you really have to go back to childhood, back to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I was, I'm a boomer the middle of three children, three boys. People know my older brother, Mark, from the Mavs and Shark Tank. I have a younger brother, Jeff. And this was a time, remember, when cell phones were two cups attached to a string. Social networking was playing dodgeball on the basketball blacktop. So it's a a much different time. And you have to understand how I interacted with my brothers and I to understand this. Mark is the firstborn was as you might expect, very outgoing. He was selling this door-to-door, selling that door-to-door. Our local newspaper went on strike in the 70s. So it was a printer strike, so both shut down. He and his buddies, barely old enough to drive, went out to Cleveland about 200 miles away, bought the Cleveland Plain dealer, drove them back to Pittsburgh, and sold them on a street corner during rush hour in downtown Pittsburgh for twice what they paid for. So you kind of knew where he was heading. My younger brother, Jeff, was a nationally ranked wrestler, a jock, the prom, the dates, the beer parties, the girlfriends, and all of the things that I associated with acceptance and peer acceptance and love. And I was classic middle child syndrome, Michael. I was shy. I was withdrawn. And I internalized anything negative said about me and wore it as kind of who I was like a skin tight suit. Unfortunately, I also had a difficult relationship with my mother. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about this, but I want to make it clear to everyone listening to this podcast that I do not blame my mother. I do not blame my parents or I don't blame my family in any way for any of my struggles. There is a difference between cause and correlation. Things can happen to some people and it won't happen to others. But things that happen in a home can correlate with mental health struggles later in life. There was a lot of fat shaming in my household. I would come home from school. I'd love Chef Boyardee ravioli and beefaroni. They still have that. And I would come home to eat lunch and I would pull out the old style can opener and open the can and we didn't have a microwave. I'd stick the spoon straight in there and start eating the beefaroni right out of the can. My mom would come home from selling real estate, walking in the kitchen and not every day, but it would happen occasionally. She'd say, if you keep eating like that, you're going to be a fat pig. Now, these were the things my grandmother said to my mom. And these were the things my great-grandmother probably said to my grandmother. I come from an Eastern European, Jewish, very dysfunctional relationship around food from the old country. You know, eat, eat, eat. And my mom had a very verbally and mentally uh, abusive relationship with her mother who had been institutionalized and was a diagnosed schizophrenic. So that kind of stuff runs downhill. And I didn't understand that. And 
being very shy. I was at home. I didn't have many friends at all. I kind of took the brunt of it. And I grew depressed as a tween, and I began to eat more and more, and I grew to be a bigger brine and a bigger brine. And as so often happens when kids change for what other kids perceive in the negative at school, the bullying started. Back then, if 15 kids in the lunchroom knew something happened, it meant it went viral, a much different time than today where we have the internet and a much more insidious way of bullying. But it didn't hurt any differently, right, when it happened. And the kids fat shame me and tease me and the bullying and the fat teasing was fairly severe. It all culminated one day in what I call the day of the gold pants, uh, my freshman year in high school, Mount Lebanon High School, just south of Pittsburgh. My brother, Mark, this was the beginning of the disco era, John Travolta, Saturday Night Fever. And my brother, Mark, was really in a disco. And he had this pair of shiny gold bell-bottom disco pants. And he gave them to me. He had bought some new ones. But they fit Mark okay. He wasn't a big guy. I had to jump up and down, spray the water bottle. My butt looked like 15 cats back there trying to get out. But I didn't care because Mark and I are close and we are today. We're then. I loved him. These were These pants were like a symbol of his love. I wore them to school. The kids made fun of them. They taunted me. And I became kind of like the sad clown, Michael. I developed a very self-deprecating sense of humor as a wall against the hurt because I didn't want them to know how much those words hurt. So I self-deprecated. Yeah, I'm headed to Sears right now to get a bra for my man boobs and this and that. And I'm walking home with a group of kids from high school. The the popular kids who I sort of hung around on the outside, hoping one day they would stop the taunts, put their arm around my neck and like a fraternity hazing, say you're one of us now, but that's not how bullying works. I'm walking home with them. There were three or four guys and I'm wearing my shiny gold bell-bottom disco pants. And it's about a mile walk to my house. They're making fun of them. We're on a busy street on the sidewalk. And one of the kids starts pulling at them. The pants rip. Another kid pulls a little more, they rip again. And next thing I know, it's a pack of rabid dogs tearing at my pants. They ripped them off me down in my Fruit of the Loom tidy whities threw them out in the street, busy street, and went on high-fiving and bro-bumping like they had done the funniest thing ever, walking down the street. I go out, I pick up the shreds, I cover up my underwear, and I waddle home. People gawked, no one stopped. I got home. And I went down into our basement. And it's funny, in Texas, you say basement and they think you're from Mars. In the East, we have basements, right? You go downstairs. They don't have those in Texas. I went down into our basement and no one was home. It was funeral quiet. And we had these old wooden stairs and they creaked. And with every creak, I felt like the whole world knew my shame. My mother could hear it, my father, my brothers, the bullies, the girls at school. And I got down into the basement and I found a wastebasket an old plastic wastebasket. And I took the shreds and I pulled out newspapers and things and I put the shreds under the newspapers, hoping that it would hide my shame, hoping I would forget my shame. But that's not how trauma works. Trauma remembers, trauma threads, the body keeps the score all through life. And when we talk about bright line moments and everyone defines trauma differently, But that event was so traumatic, I could go to that spot in Pittsburgh, PA, and show you exactly where it happened. And I remember at that time starting to see a different Brian in the mirror, starting to see a different Brian in my reflection in the car window, starting to see a different Brian in the classroom window. I saw a fat pig who was never going to be loved, who would never hold a girl's hand, who would never get his first kiss, who would never get married. And that is the image that I carried into my freshman year of college when my dad drove me to Penn State University. So as you can imagine, with the bullying, I was very happy to get out of Pittsburgh, very happy to leave high school, because in my mind, it was a fresh start. I was going to be a whole new Brian. It was going to be great, going to make friends. My dad drives me up to Penn State. It's about a 150-mile drive from Pittsburgh, and it's freshman orientation, and I'm in a dorm. And my father's helping me unpack. And I look out the storm window and it was this cool fall crisp day. There are leaves falling into the parking lot, clear blue skies. Kids are getting acquainted with each other, unpacking their trunks. Parents are talking to each other. And I make eye contact with this curly brown haired girl. She looks at me. I look at her. I start sweating, Michael. 
And within about 15 seconds, I imagined my entire life with this girl. We're going to date, we're going to get married, and we're going to have two and one half children. My life is good now. Everything's going to be good. It wasn't a smile. It was a smirk. She turns, looks at me, turns to her friends, looks back at me, and cups her hand in one of those megaphone cups on her mouth and yells, ugly, ugly. Now, I'm not the first kid to have a nasty thing said to him by a girl, right? We all respond differently based on where we are in life. Another kid may have said ugly back. Another kid may have flipped her off. Another kid may have done this, done that. But we respond based on how we feel about ourselves and our genetics, our social upbringing, and all kinds of different environmental variables. And I don't blame this girl any more than I blame my mother or anyone else. But I was somebody who already felt ugly. And I remember at that time thinking that, okay, here we go again. My life is out of control. What do I have control over in my life? What do I have control over as a now just going on 18-year-old teenager in the 1979? I had control over food, right? This is before Al Gore invented the internet. I didn't have the internet. That's a joke for people listening. (laughs) So I had control over food, but I associated eating more with getting heavy, getting fat, and the bullying. So I began to restrict my food intake and restrict and restrict and restrict. And I quickly transitioned into binging and purging, which is, you know, when you eat a lot and you throw up your food. So I had become bulimic. I was a guy with an eating disorder. That is very stigmatized today, male with eating disorders. This was in 1979. And for those who do not know, there was a singer by the name of Karen Carpenter, beautiful singer, The Carpenters, who died in 1983 from complications relating to anorexia. And she brought it into the pre-digital spotlight. This was before that. I didn't know what an eating disorder was. But what I knew, Michael, was that every time I binged and purged, I felt this feeling of peace come over me. This feeling that the next day everything was going to be okay. The next day I would be popular. The next day that curly brown-haired girl would like me. The next day my mother would love me. And she loved me dearly. She was just dealing with her own stuff. And so I had to have that feeling again and again and again. And so I was a bulimic. I am in recovery from bulimia today as well as drugs and alcohol. And there are lawyers. I talk to lawyers all the time who are are in recovery from eating disorders. So it's not as uncommon as you might think. I quickly also then transitioned into drinking. I turned 21 and I was going to our state stores, the liquor stores in in, uh, Pennsylvania State College, PA, and I would buy a bottle of, uh, a little bottle of tequila, and I would drink it out in the alleyway outside of the bars at Penn State so I could get drunk before I went into the bars to drink to get drunker. And I was really trying to dull how I felt about myself and find a way to be loved and be accepted. So maybe I can drink my way into acceptance by being a different Brian. I can forget that I'm that fat pig. And before I knew it, at Penn State University, I was an alcoholic. And alcoholic is a label. The clinical diagnosis is alcohol use disorder. Though I wasn't diagnosed with it back then, we didn't talk about that stuff in the early 80s. And so I was drinking at night alone. I was going to class drunk and hungover. And I wanted to be a police officer. That would have worked out well. I would have been the first guy in the evidence room trading out the baby laxative for the blow, right? There would have been a movie about me. And I managed, you know, it wasn't a hard major, so I managed to do uh, pretty well. And interestingly, the closest I ever came to any epiphany that I might have a problem back then was walking into a hamburger joint, drunk, of course, and I came across this rack of pamphlets that the 12-step groups put out called the 20 Questions, For the and the most well-known 12-step is AA, but there are others. And it was geared towards college students. Answer these questions. Do you black out? Do you do this? And I'm checking off yes to all these. Call us, and there's a phone number. I crumpled it up. I'm just a law student. Crumple it up. My tryout for the Mavericks right in the wastebasket. And I just went on living my life the same way I had. While Brian caught a glimmer of the true life he was living, he wasn't ready to face it. And while many people become attorneys to take on bullies or advocate for justice, Brian's motivations were not so noble. I'm in our placement office for my major, criminal justice, looking at jobs, looking at police officers' jobs, flipping through these little pamphlets, pre-computer. And there are two guys sitting next to me, and they're from Pittsburgh, where I grew up, talking about going, taking the law school admission test, and they're talking about whether they can get into pit law. And I start listening. 
and the bells start going off in my head, Michael, the bells. And they weren't the bells of, oh, I want to be a lawyer. I didn't know any lawyers. I'm the only lawyer in our family. I don't remember ever even meeting a lawyer back then. They were the bells of, I had no envision of three years out or six years out. They were the bells of, law school's three years. I can stay out of the world for three more years and I can drink, I can binge and purge, and I'd also develop what is known as exercise bulimia, which is obsessive compulsive exercise for the primary purpose of offsetting calories. So I was running 10 miles a day, 20 miles a day, while also binging and purging and drinking. Quite a bit of stress on my body back then. And that made perfect sense to me. That made perfect sense because my entire life was not about my future. It was about the nose in front of my face. It was about survival. It was just about surviving moment to moment, second to second. And if I went out in the real world, that meant I had to expose myself. That means I had to give up my Linus, my peanuts, Linus security blankets of the alcohol, the eating disorder. And I didn't want to do that because then I would be naked to the world as a messed up guy. And so I decided to take the law school admission test for those reasons only. Not a very good reason for going to law school, a pretty dysfunctional reason. But you know what, Michael? I talk to law students all the time, and I hear students who don't want to be there. They're only there because their parents are lawyers, their brothers are lawyers, their parents pressured them, their first generation, and this and that. And they say, Brian, I don't even want to be here. I don't know why I'm here. Now, I won't say that happens all the time. But it might not be my reasons, but law students do often have reasons. They just don't want to be in law school. They felt pressured, and they're pressuring themselves to stay. And that can be a trigger for mental health issues in itself. So I took the LSATs, and surprisingly, I did well enough to get into pit law. And so I walked through the doors of pit law, one hour orientation as an alcoholic. Sound familiar? As a bulimic with my, you know, rather running and drinking than uh, out for a jog than go to class. Not quite the recipe for law review. Not quite the recipe for a lot other than survival. But as we know, you can't just pull an all-nighter in law school like I did at Penn State and do well on exams. It doesn't work that way. And once again, it was rinse, wash, repeat. I was going to class drunk, going to class hungover. I did my first year mood court intoxicated. And it's kind of a microcosm of my time at my three years of pit law. I can point everyone to my civil procedure class, my first year civil procedure class. I had been out all night drinking. I didn't have any idea where I left my books. I show up to class and I smelled and I I sit down and I have our seatmates, right? They're assigned seats. They're looking at me trying to get away. And dude, just take the L, go home, just go home. And I'm shrinking in my seat. I'm shrinking because our professors, they call on people. And you're, and I, please don't call on me. Please don't call on me. Mr. Cuban, what do you think about this jurisdictional question on the blackboard back when we had blackboards? And I think it was something like Penoyer v. Neff or something like that. And professor, I'm not prepared. I don't have my books. Silence. Okay, he's going to go on to someone else. Yes, he is. Well, Mr. Cuban, when you say you're not prepared, do you mean you're not prepared for this question? Scribble, scribble, scribble. And he writes another hypothetical on the blackboard. Professor, I'm not feeling well. I'm not prepared. Please go on to someone else. I'm sorry. Well, Mr. Cuban, oh, I uttered an expletive. I stood up and I bolted out of the room. And uh, my, my voice projects. And that was basically my three years at Pitt Law. I did not do well. I graduated near the bottom of my class, and I still have reoccurring dreams about going to graduation and the dean of the law school pulling back the diploma going, psych, you didn't graduate. And I wake up sweating, grabbing for, the, grabbing for that diploma. Now, the highlight of that was, as it came full circle, and it was a year and a half ago, I was invited back to keynote the Pitt 2020 commencement, and I wore the cap and gown. So uh, that was quite gratifying. And I graduated Pitt Law as, once again, say it with me, crowd, alcoholic, bulimic, yada, yada, yada. I took the PA bar, which I passed. I $50, $100 to my name in a duffel bag. I got on a Greyhound bus and 
took the bus to Dallas, Texas, fall 1986, Labor Day. Why? Because both my brothers, Mark and Jeff, had already moved to Dallas, and I wanted to be with people who I knew loved me unconditionally because I didn't love myself. I hated myself, and their love could save me, but that's not how addiction works. That's not how self-image works. So my brother Mark met me at the Greyhound bus station, and I moved in with him. And it was like throwing gasoline on a fire because they don't know my issues. They're in their 20s and 30s. This is Dallas, Texas. In the oil boom, people are out. They're out drinking, dating. And so I fit right in. And then in the summer, I hadn't taken the bar yet. So the summer of 1987, in an upscale bar in the bathroom, wearing my high school seer suit, pretending I'm a lawyer. I hadn't yet even taken the bar exam. I discovered the one thing, the very first thing in my life that allowed me to look in the mirror and finally love myself. Look in the mirror and my mother loved me. Look in the mirror and that curly brown haired girl loved me. Look in the mirror and every girl upstairs in that club is going to love Brian Cuban. But most importantly, Brian loved Brian Cuban. I discovered cocaine. I did my first line of cocaine, from, got it from a buddy of mine, and it was like nothing I'd ever experienced. It just swept over me. It swept over me, this feeling of self-love and confidence. I go upstairs and I'm strutting through the bar. Yeah, hey, baby, yeah, what's up? Then it wore off and then I'm lockjaw and where's that dealer? Where's my friend? And I found a dealer and I bought a gram of cocaine and cocaine and alcohol took over my life, Michael. Took over my life as I failed the Texas bar exam three times, two and a half times, because in Texas you can take it in two parts. The first time I took the Texas bar exam, my study aides in a roadway roach-infested motel the weekend before the exam were some Barbary books I'd borrowed that weekend. <laughs> a uh, three and a half ounces of cocaine, a fifth of Jack Daniels, and a liter of Tab. Those are my study aids the weekend before the exam. And as you might expect, I failed. And I failed again because partying and drugs and alcohol were more important than studying. And then I passed and I became a Texas licensed attorney who was an alcoholic, who, who was now addicted to cocaine. And so it became more important to me to make sure I had money to do all those things. And I went into plaintiff's law and I became a stereotypical, and I say this with all due deference to the wonderful plaintiff lawyers I know who do it right, who do it right. And I became the stereotypical ambulance chaser. There's a reason that stereotype and name exists. And I'm one of the reasons. I was taking whatever cases I could, whether I was qualified or not. I developed a group of chiropractors who would, and this was the time of pagers, right? You get a page and you have to go to a cell phone. So my trusty Metrocell pager. So uh, I would get a page and I would go to a cell phone and I had rolls and rolls of quarters in my car. And they'd say, Brian, we have a fish down here. One of them called it a fish. So I would go down to the office with my briefcase of contingency agreements and letters of protection. And I would sit in the office in my scuff shoes, my briefcase and my seer suit. And the chiropractor would come out of the exam room with the potential client. Mr. Cuban, what are you doing here? Mr. Cuban is one of our top trial lawyers. Mr. Cuban's never tried a case to completion. Mr. Cuban will get you the best settlement possible. Mr. Cuban will sell you down the river and cut his fee, do whatever he has to do so he doesn't have to step in a courtroom. And I don't say that as a badge of honor. I say that as somebody who crossed ethical lines, as so often happens with lawyers who struggle with drugs and alcohol. You go to the Texas Bar Journal and you'll go into the back and they're called the pages of shame, right? Because on the back of the lawyers who have been disbarred, sanctioned, and a high percent of Joe's ethical lapses are going to correlate to drugs and alcohol. And I know the listeners are wondering, how does this guy still have his license or has he been disbarred? No, but it wasn't for a lack of trying. And I say that tongue in cheek, but like I said, go to the pages of shame and you see it. You see it. That is the natural progression of drugs and alcohol for many lawyers. And I was very lucky that it didn't happen to me. And I was, I'm very ashamed of the way I practiced law during many of those years. You know, later on, I eventually lost all my clients. And I eventually, I went to jail 
in the summer of uh, 1990, after my first of three divorces, one more I get a free set of steak knives, all failing because of drugs and alcohol. I was arrested for DWI, and that's kind of an interesting story. I had, I had just gotten divorced, and I was at this bar in Dallas, and I'm drinking, and I'm drinking, and I'm drinking, and uh, well before Uber, but we had calves. And of course, like any drunk, I'm thinking, okay, I don't live far. I can make it. So I'm going up this highway, and a state trooper pulls in right behind me, and I'm just about at the exit just about at the exit to my place, walking distance. He pulls me over and it's this elderly state trooper. We're on the side of the highway and he asked me to do the alphabet backwards and I'm Z, F, C. He asked me to touch my nose and I'm hitting the air behind my head. And I said to him, I did great. You're going to let me go, right? He said, no, son, click. The feel of steel will really wake you up. So he handcuffs me, and uh, we're in the car driving down to, uh, it's called uh, the Crowley Courthouse Starrett Jail in Dallas. And I'm talking to him, and I'm saying, when I'm going to blow. I'm so sure I'm not drunk that I'm going to blow in that breathalyzer, right? And uh, he said, yeah, right. Okay. I said, when I blow, will you take me back to my car? He said, son, he called me, son, that's not going to happen. But he humored, sure, if you do, we'll consider that. And I blew a 1-1. Back then, it was .10 and uh, spent the night in the drunk tank. But I lucked out, Michael. I lucked out. One of my nine lives, the day I pled not guilty, as was my right. We got a bench trial. And I show up for trial. My lawyer comes out of the courtroom with a piece of paper. It's a dismissal. And he says, happy birthday. They dismissed the case. I said, why? He said, the state trooper, he retired. And he moved back to wherever in Texas, and he wasn't coming to testify against you. And they couldn't get him to come and prove up the breathalyzer. So they just, I said, thank you, thank you. And he says, don't thank me, thank the DAs. They're the one who dropped dropped the case, the assistant DA. So I opened up the assistant DA workroom door, and there are like four of them in there. I said, thank you. And they all look at me like they want to throw me off the building. And he pulls me back and says, I was kidding. Get out of here before they refile. It's without prejudice. So- that was another one of my where I kind of walked the edge and didn't fall, but many lawyers fall. While situations like these are often the catalyst for many people to pick themselves up and turn their lives around, it turned out Brian had a lot further to go before hitting rock bottom. I went to work for my brother Mark as kind of a personal, not, not his lawyer, but as kind of a personal jack of all trades. And so he put me to work for him while they were building the American Airlines Center, of which he owns a half interest in Dallas. I was showing up. He says, be my point man. I was showing up at these meetings, Michael, drunk, coked up still after being out all night, just rinse, wash, repeat with some of the most important people in Dallas. He had to pull me out of this. And there is huge privilege here, I admit. I have skin color privilege, financial privilege, name privilege, and I would be disingenuous not to acknowledge all those things because 99.9999% of people don't have the privilege I have, including family privilege of a close family unit and a brother who didn't want to see me living under a bridge who has deep pockets. And my brother, Mark, began supporting me. You know, in family, you struggle, right? Our family was no different. How do you pull someone out of that? How do you get them to want to recover? You can't. You can't love somebody enough to make them recover. You can't. You have to want it. And I didn't want it. Even with all that, I didn't want it. And in the summer of 2005, I finally lost all hope that I would ever look in the mirror and love myself, that I would ever have any kind of future. And I decided I would be doing my family a favor by ending my life by suicide. And it was close, Michael. It was close. Uh, A friend of mine, after getting a disturbing email from me, emailed my brothers and called them. And they came into my house. First, Jeff. Mark flew in from LA. I had a 45 automatic on my nightstand. There were lines of cocaine on the dresser. And uh, Mark showed up. Jeff took the weapon and they cleaned up all the mess. Mark showed up and they took me on my first of two trips to a local psychiatric facility, kicking and screaming kicking and screaming. They're trying to save my life. All I can think of is get out of my life, right? Get out of my life and let me go back to the people who truly love me, at least until the cocaine is gone. The people I partied with. And they weren't having any of it. 
they took me down and we're, we're in the room and I'm with this psychiatric attending physician, the nurse, my two brothers, and I'm screaming at them, let me go home. I'm just ranting and they're listening. They're not responding. They're listening. They've loved me. They're trying to save me. And I also knew what I had to say, much to their chagrin. So they couldn't put a psychiatric hold on me in Texas. I'm not a danger to myself, not a danger to others. So they had to take me back home and they didn't like that. And again, privilege comes in. They were, I could have gone straight to treatment from that hospital without regard to insurance. Again, massive privilege. And I wouldn't. Doesn't mean I took advantage of the privilege. So they drove me back home, said, we're going to take your car keys and just stay in your house for two weeks and everything will be okay. That's not how addiction works either. So they did that, and I had a drug dealer that delivered, and we'll get into that later, and that's all I thought about. My drug dealer delivers, no problem. And so I just brought the party to me. And I also thought, okay, now they really know, right? So now I'm going to stop seeing my nieces and nephews. Now I'm going to stop seeing my father. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to distance, and I did. And I went right back out while my brother was supporting. And one of the more funny stories out of all this, and then comes summer of 2006, the Dallas Mavericks went to the NBA championship for the very first time in June of 2006. And at this point, I'm just a mess. I really am. We are really getting near the end. And I'm just blowing and going every night. And my brother's family's beside themselves. Uh, my brothers, my father, mother didn't know anything about these issues. I was very good at hiding from my parents and my father who lived across the street from me. So as you might imagine, I'm going to get some pretty good seats from those games, right? We're going to the finals. And uh, so I also called up my brother to get a couple of tickets from my friend. You know, I told him for friends. He said, sure, Bri, come on over. I got the tickets. And I didn't give them to my friends and I didn't sell them on eBay for an astronomical amount. I traded them to my cocaine dealer for $1,000 in cocaine. My dealer shows up at my house. I give him the tickets. He gives me this giant Ziploc baggie of cocaine. I go running up to my home office. I had my offices at home and I had this long oak wood desk befitting my status as a lawyer with, uh, without any clients and who was a complete mess. And I dumped the cocaine out on the desk like this giant pile. I kind of wanted to be like Scarface and rub my nose in it. So I, I lined some out and I roll up a dollar bill. And cocaine users are kind of an ironic bunch, especially in pandemic times, right? You wash your hands or use the Purell and all this stuff, but we'll shove a dollar bill up our nose that has God knows what on it and has been used by who knows who and snort from it. Go figure. But uh, that's addiction. Cocaine at this point had stopped being fun. There's a saying, cocaine's fun till it's not. And at this point in the summer of 2006, I was chasing the highs that were never going to come again. I was literally just existing day to day. I was cocaining my way through the nights and Xanax and my way through the day, which makes it hard to uh, practice law regardless if I had clients. And Michael, I have done cocaine in the state courthouse bathroom, the federal courthouse bathroom. I've done cocaine everywhere without regard to the consequences. And that is the definition of addiction. Did I know it was wrong? Sure. Of course I knew it was wrong. Did I know doing cocaine in the federal courthouse bathroom is risky? Of course I knew it was risky. But what is the definition of addiction? Obsessive compulsive drug use and drug seeking behavior without regard to known consequences. So of course, that's why lawyers get disbarred, <laughs> right? And go to jail. So we, we, we had really reached the point of it was just awful, but I kept thinking that the next line was going to be the line that turned it all around and recapture that feeling. And it was never, do I have a problem? It was maybe I need to change drug dealers or maybe I need to switch out the Grey Goose to the Jack Daniels. And then there was paranoia. I have this mound of cocaine in front of me. Well, yeah, there's a lot of cocaine here. Do I hear the cops outside? And I really thought I heard the police out there. So I go peeking through my windows that are stapled shut, the curtains stapled shut. And I'm peeking out there and there's no one out there. But now I'm all paranoid. And I hide the cocaine. I get in my car. I drive to a home improvement store where I buy electrical faceplate outlets, a drill, and a saw. I go back to my house. I go to the drywall in my house in the different closets and take the drill and the saw and create these fake electrical outlets and I take the cocaine, put it behind all these in all these small Ziploc baggies, put it behind all these fake electrical outlets in the drywall, slap the face plates on and drill it, close it up like thinking I'm the smartest lawyer ever. Like the DEA, the cops and the drug dogs have never thought of that one before. And 
I do a little more. And again, now it's just pain and shame, paranoia, lockjaw, physical, you know, heart palpitations and paranoia again. About an hour later, I go back to those same electrical outlets, undrill them, take the face plates off, put all the cocaine back in the same Ziploc, the giant Ziploc baggie, go to my master toilet in the bedroom and flush it down the toilet. Now it's about $900 worth of cocaine. The next morning comes, I wake up and I'm thinking, wait a minute, did I flush all my cocaine down the toilet? There's another game tonight. What an idiot I am. I call my brother again. I get two more tickets. I call my drug dealer. He shows up at my house. He said, second night in a row. He said, dude, you second day in a row. He said, dude, you did all that last night. I didn't want to tell him I flushed it down the toilet like a moron. He said, yes, give me more. Okay, here you go. Rinse, wash, repeat, Michael. Back up, dump it out on the desk, line it out, snort it. And again, just pain and shame and just, oh, just nasty but still not quite the self-awareness yet. I'm not at the stages of change to really move forward. And paranoia again. I hide the cocaine again behind all the electrical outlets. A little bit later, I take it back out, go to that same bathroom the second night in a row, take my cocaine and flush it down the toilet again. They say when Dallas flushes, it runs downhill to Houston. So maybe some people in Houston had a couple, a little hop in their steps those two nights, right? The quote unquote insanity of addiction, doing the same thing over and over the same way and expecting a different result. But it's not insane. It's a biological brain-based process that affects so many of others, whether it's alcohol, whether it's you know cocaine or opiates. And we know from the Betty Ford Hazleton study that lawyers suffer from uh, alcohol use disorder at a rate almost twice the general public. We know if you're a millennial lawyer, 10 years or less, it's uh, over a third alcohol use disorder. And we have the survey from uh, DC and the Washington District Bar uh, that was just conducted last year during the pandemic where you're, you have 30% rates and you have, uh, you have a lot of people, particularly uh, women lawyers, considering leaving the profession. And that hit on during the pandemic. So we are a profession in crisis from that standpoint in terms of mental health. And it's hard to be a game-changing lawyer and it's hard to lead when we're not taking care of our own mental health struggles, right? While Brian's story may sound shocking, it's actually more common in the legal profession than one might think. However, one can only run from the consequences of their choices for so long. And for Brian, the turning point in his road to recovery was not a moment, but a person. I began dating a girl. Her name's Amanda. And she moved in with me. We met in January of 2006, so the Mavs tickets thing was going on when we were dating, and she, she didn't know anything about my struggles. She didn't know anything about my struggles. But then she moves in with me. And I remember a friend of mine, when she said, I said she was moving, and he said, how's that going to work? You do what you do. She doesn't do what you do. And I said, well, I'm going to stop. This is going to cause me to stop. So now I'm in the stages of change, starting to think about it, right? I'm starting to think about it. Well, I guess I didn't think about it hard enough. Easter weekend came around, Easter weekend 2007. She went away for the weekend to visit her parents. I went out. And the next thing I know, it's Sunday. It started Friday. She left Friday. It's Sunday evening. I'm in bed. She's looking down at me. There's cocaine everywhere. There's alcohol bottles, my Xanax strewn around. I had had a two-day drug and alcohol-induced blackout. I'm trying to get my senses. She's probably trying to figure out if she walked in the right house. And I'm trying to figure out what lie I can tell to explain this law and order episode orgy of evidence that I might not be the person I represented myself to be. All I can think of was a metaphorical run home to mama. Take me back to the blank and I named the psychiatric hospital. You've been to a psychiatric hospital? Yeah, we'll talk about that later. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, she didn't know about any of my history. And so she takes me back down and she's crying. And I really was just needed time to think of a lie that was going to explain for what there was only one explanation for. She takes me back down and we're standing in the parking lot waiting for intake for the second time in my life. I am. And she's crying. And a few things occurred to me in that parking lot. Three things. One, there wouldn't be a third trip back. I'd be dead. Two, she was going to leave me. I'd leave me. Michael, she actually stood by me. And we dated for over a decade while I rebuilt the broken trust and found recovery. We have now been married over five years. And this month, uh, next week, we'll have our 16th year together. So not all relationships will survive that, but ours was able to 
But it was one, because she's a saint, and two, because I had to do the work for me, right? I had to recover for me, and I had to put a lot of work into it. I had to repair the broken trust. And so uh, one more thing occurred to me in that lot, and this was the game-changing thing, really. I thought about my father. I thought about my father, who was a veteran of the Pacific, greatest generation, fought in the Battle of Okinawa, a CB fought in Korea. My father was the middle of three boys like me. He and his older brother operated what is known as a trim shop in Pittsburgh, PA. They put on convertible tops and they reupholstered car seats, very middle class. They operated it from the end of the Korean War until 1999 when his brother passed away. He used to say to us, guys, Mark, Brian, Jeff, wherever you go in life, whatever happens, always pick up the phone always ask your brother how he's doing. Always tell your brother you love him. This was the relationship he had as the middle of three boys, like me, with his brothers. And he was passing on to us the gift of family, the strong family core. That is a privilege for many because I've talked to so many lawyers too that don't have that. Estranged families uh, that don't speak to their kids and all kinds of things. And he was giving us this gift. And I thought about that. And I wasn't ready to lose my family, Michael. I wasn't, I just wasn't ready to lose my family. Not that I would lose their love, but I wasn't seeing them anymore. Families distance, right? They get frustrated because what did I say earlier? You can't love somebody enough to make them recover. I realized for whatever reason at that moment that I had to begin my love myself enough to make me recover. And that was the moment when I decided that it was time. Why then and not 2005 when I was ready to end my life? I couldn't tell you. If we can figure out those things, we'd win the Nobel Prize for addiction, right? I decided I was ready. And that was Easter weekend, 2007. And so the next day I walked into my psychiatrist's office who I'd been seen for two years and lying, lying, lying to, to get my uh, antidepressants while I'm also drinking and doing blow. That works out well. And why would you lie to your psychiatrist? You're paying them. Shame knows no hourly rate. I was ashamed. And I finally got honest with them. I finally tapped into what lawyers, and I find this especially trial lawyers, have such great difficulty with for ourselves, right? I finally allowed myself to be vulnerable in a safe space and allowed myself to cry and allowed myself to talk about the hurting Brian, the hurting child that I had never healed. And we began that process. So my psychiatrist says, would you consider going to 12-step? And I, I, I didn't want to go. I said, I can't go. I can't go. I, I'm too busy. I'm too busy. I have no cases left. But, you know, there's a, I saw an auto accident right outside. I'm going to give him my card, right? Because I'm an ambulance chaser and I'll have a case. <laughs> my mind was just rolling. He said, would you consider going to 12-step? The meeting room's right next door. And I laugh when I think about this. I said, I can't go. They smoke out there. I see them smoking. Secondhand smoke will kill you. <laughs> Not addiction, but secondhand smoke will kill you. And the things we come up with to uh, try to uh, avoid doing what we won't have to do. But I, I wanted to show my now wife, I wanted to show my family that I was doing something. And I had to show myself. So I decided I would walk into the rooms of 12-step. And April 8th, 2007, I sat down on that uncomfortable chair for the first time and I was crying and kind of like winch wash repeat. I smelled and I was sweating. I hadn't changed my clothes in two days. And when I sat down in that chair, Michael, for the first time, I didn't know if I was a quote unquote alcoholic or alcohol use disorder. What I did know is that if sitting in that chair would allow me for the first time in my life the very first time, and now I'm in my 40s, to wake up, walk to my bathroom mirror, birthday suit naked, look myself in the eye and love myself. If sitting in that chair would allow me to do that, I would sit in that chair. And I sat and I sat and I sat. And uh, I continued in counseling. I still go to counseling today. I still see the same guy. I take antidepressants because my depression exists independently of uh, my addiction. They, they coexist and they can exist independently. And I am now uh, 14 and a half years in long-term recovery from drugs, alcohol, and my eating disorder. 
And as I went through all of these things, I mean, I uh, looking back, and these are, this is why I guess why I wrote The Addicted Lawyer is there was just nothing out there for lawyers to say, I'm not alone, to say someone out there found his vulnerability, someone out there allowed himself to begin his recovery while being vulnerable, and maybe I can allow myself to do that too. And so that is really why I wrote wrote the book, because I didn't see anything out there at the time that lawyers could look to because it's tough. Lawyers don't like to admit vulnerability, right? We learn to take advantage of vulnerability on the witness stand or in the mediation room or wherever it is, especially trial lawyers. And I won't, I don't say that as a bad thing. It's just how we're educated, right? You look for weakness. But what we don't look for is our humanity and allow ourselves to explore our own because we what do we do? If we're looking for weakness of someone else on the witness stand, it becomes very easy to equate vulnerability with our own weakness. If I allow myself to be vulnerable, I am weak. If I am weak, it will be taken advantage of, whether it's you know by the state bar, by the lawyer's assistance program, or the, another story about that. They're confidential, but I talk to lawyers all the time saying, no, they're not, no matter what they say. That is how I got where I am today. Well, I'll tell you what, as I was reading the book and even hearing your story, you know, I think here's somebody that's, as you mentioned, is surrounded by love. And as you look through all these experiences, what do you believe? I mean, was there a point where you think if at this moment this had gone differently or if this had, uh, maybe it was the bullying, maybe it was, you know, a different approach of saying, maybe it's not just about just get over it or whatever it might be. Like, how do you change the course of history for someone else versus having them have to go on this long journey to discover this? Well, I don't say that because I I don't believe in revisionist recovery for me personally, right? To look back at my story, uh, it got me here talking to you. It got me talking to countless law students and countless lawyers and giving them the benefit of my non-revisionist history to hopefully get them to take action at the highest possible point versus the lowest possible point. So I, I really don't because I don't regret the path. Do I regret the people I hurt? Absolutely. I have three ex-wives. I have this. I've hurt my family, my wife. Do I regret that? Absolutely, I do. And I try to make living amends for that. Do I regret that I took the clients that I didn't do my best for? Absolutely. Absolutely. I regret all of that. But when I talk to lawyers, I want them to take, uh, if there are lessons from my story, right? Because what am I an expert in, Michael? I'm not a counselor. I don't have a PhD in anything. I don't portray myself as an addiction expert, as any kind of expert in anything. I am an expert in my journey, nothing more. I am an expert in what I learned about myself from my journey. So when I talk to lawyers, if you can take something, some commonality, whether it's the bullying, whether it's the childhood trauma, whether it's you know something that happened in your life, if you can take some commonality and apply that to yourself in taking a positive step, then that is wonderful. And you have to believe it, there's a degree of irony almost in the sense that throughout the majority of your life, you're you're hiding most of this stuff, right? And you're hiding out from the world. And then in this book, you're being as open and vulnerable and you're putting everything out there. And you know, I imagine it was therapeutic in some way, but it's just an interesting juxtaposition. Sure. And I always keep in mind, right, that not every lawyer wants to. There are lawyers, we have more lawyers speaking out every day, right? We have wonderful lawyers uh, speaking out every day about what they're going through. But you have to remember, not everyone... Not every lawyer is doing it because he wants to be an advocate. Not every lawyer. Lawyers want to practice law. They love the law. And over 50% of people recover from what they're going through on substance use disorder without ever going to 12-step or without ever doing this or doing that. They want to recover and be the best lawyer they can be. They're not looking to be the spokespeople for a recovery movement. So I'm always very cognizant of that. So it becomes more about, okay, where are you, where do you feel you're stumbling? Where do you see yourself next year or six months? What, what, are, your, what are your family relationships like? What do you, you tell me where you think you are stumbling and let's figure out how to unstumble you. Not through my journey, not through, you know, through yours. But maybe you can take something of what I did and what I learned and apply it. 
And I imagine to a lot of the people that are going to be listening to this podcast even now, on the one hand, someone might think, wow, this story, Brian's story is absolutely unbelievable. I cannot believe this happened. I mean, there's parts where I think you were describing, you, you walked into a, a bathroom one time that do a line of cocaine and you were offended that those bathroom stalls didn't go all the way down to the floor. That didn't create the right ambiance. Yeah, there are good cocaine bathrooms and bad cocaine bathrooms. That's right. It, you're hearing this stuff and you could be shocked. And yet, interestingly enough, the statistics show that it's not actually as uncommon as some people might think. If, if you could share just the fact of like how prevalent this is in the legal profession. Well, it's very, I mean, when we, the uh, ABA Betty Ford Hazleton study really was alcohol focused, right? And we know uh, over 20% of, uh, from that study, and that was about five years ago, we know over 20% of licensed attorneys struggle with alcohol use disorder or is a quote unquote alcoholic. And we have to be careful with that because it happens on a on a scale, right? Some people may have low uh, low end alcohol use disorder, moderate alcohol use disorder, severe alcohol disorder, and we're labeling them all as alcoholics. So you have to be real careful about that. So it's prevalent, and we know that lawyers under ten years of practice, it's over thirty three percent, one in three, one in three, and. Anecdotally, and I say this anecdotally because I don't have the data behind me. Anecdotally, I know that it is a much different analysis from a AMLA perspective than it is from a mid-sized perspective, from a boutique perspective, from a solo practitioner perspective, because the resources and the problems are viewed differently, especially trial lawyers, right? In my anecdotal perspective, there is a much different view of drinking and the drinking culture in the trial lawyer profession than there is in big law. Because in big law, you have these people signing up for the wellness pledge, the ABA wellness pledge. They're putting all these structures in place. And so you have associates who work for the firm or who work for the law firm, and it's all trickling downward. And they don't want to get fired, right? Or they want to do this or they want to do that. Well, it's much different when you're working for yourself or you're the name partner and you just killed that jury trial, even though you're drinking every night and you brought in, you know, you just got a $2 million verdict. I couldn't have a problem. How could I have a problem? I just brought in a $2 million verdict. That's how a lot of lawyers look at it. I remember I sat down with this lawyer of a litigation firm. He's a good friend of mine. I won't name, name him. We have lunch. And he said, uh, Brian, and I'm telling him what I'm doing. And he said, Brian, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't care about studies. I don't care about how much of the profession is suffering. If one of my associates, if one of my lawyers has a drinking problem, I want him to get help. But if he's not going to take care of it, I'll fire him. Now, we won't get into ADA issues here, but if you know going to take care of it, I'll fire him and I'll get someone to replace him. I care about providing excellent service to my clients, whether it's in the courtroom or everywhere else. I care about maintaining my lifestyle. I care about, and you know, he named three or four different things. None of them was the, the wellness of the profession. I don't think that's an ununique view when you get into smaller firms and profit margins are smaller when, you know, it's client by client. And so how do we reach that? How do we reach those people? So it's a much different analysis, I think, when you drop into the trial lawyers. Again, I'm just speaking anecdotally. Yeah, and I mean, you have to imagine there's there's so many barriers, obviously, to even seeking help, whether it's, you know, your risk of being terminated, the the financial implications, and, and you mentioned the social stigma. I think that is especially strong. The incentive structure isn't right for seeking out help. And it's even stronger within the uh, small firm and solo litigation field because- your livelihood depends on, you know, often client by client, right? The big case, the big trucking case, the big this, especially in plaintiff's law, plaintiff's litigation. And you worry that anything that gets out, all of a sudden you're not getting those cases and Joe's firm down the street is getting them, right? And you're worried if you go to the lawyer's assistance program here, it's called TLAP. I just rolled off the TLAP advisory committee, Texas Lawyer's Assistance Program. Well, I'm not going there because they're an arm of the state bar. Well, they're not anywhere. They're not. But it's going to get out. It's going to get out. I don't care what anyone says about being confidential. I remember I spoke to the Dallas, a Dallas bar group. This is a few years now. And I was speaking about TLAP. And after the meeting, a lawyer came up to me and said, a seasoned trial lawyer, said, Brian, I know what you're saying, but if you go to him, it's going to get out. It's going to get to the state bar and you're screwed, right? You're going to lose your ticket. You're going to lose your ticket. And I said, how do you know that? Give me some evidence. You're a lawyer. Give me evidence. He said, well, another lawyer told me. Well, how did he know that? Well, I think a lawyer told him. So this is, there you go. A seasoned trial lawyer is coming to me with a guy told a guy who told a guy. 
And that stigma, that is the nature of the stigma because lawyers think, well, maybe Brian's right, but if he's wrong, I'm screwed. And even the studies that have been done on this, when you're, when you're stating any sort of statistic, is that based on someone self-reporting, like them filling out a survey saying, I'm doing X, Y, and Z? Of course, it's self-reporting, but the ABA Betty Ford Hazleton study was an audit. I mean, it was double-blind anonymous. So, but an interesting thing about that study, when you got into illicit drugs, alcohol is acceptable to talk about. Depression is acceptable to talk about. Even in that anonymous study, when you got into illicit drugs, there wasn't enough of a sample size that responded, because even in an anonymous study, lawyers are afraid that if they admitted to cocaine use or illegal opioid use or heroin. It was not anonymous. So there you go, right? There's the stigma. So at what point, I mean, for someone who's listening, because I, I imagine that this is much, much more prevalent than most people believe it to be. At what point do you do you know that you really have a problem? Because I, I remember at one point you opened the, up the book and you talk about trading those two tickets to the Mavs championship basketball game. Like, wait, how often does that come around, right? For $1,000 worth of cocaine. I read that and I think, okay, that's the point you know. No, I mean, like I said, if we could figure that out, Right. If we can figure that out, they uh, what we call our rock quote. I hate rock bottom, because the goal should be to recover at the highest possible point. The goal to be to step forward in recovery before that happens, before there are consequences, before you've malpracticed or grieved or anything like that. If we could figure that out, we'd win the Nobel Prize. But here's what it comes down to: it comes down to the people around us. Right. It comes down to. What are you doing to protect the profession? What are you doing to help your colleagues, right? Who is our compassionate community? How are we creating a compassionate community to reach out to somebody who we think has a problem before that happens or who we think is struggling? And it could be any reason. So it's more than just the person, because if we had the self-awareness in the moment, we'd take action. And I didn't have that self-awareness, but maybe someone else does. When I got my DWI, and frankly, this is all my brother said, too. I was uh, of counsel at a small firm. All the partner said was, get a good lawyer. He didn't tell me about uh, TLAP, or, and, and TLAP was very young in those days. But, uh, you know, he said, was, get a good lawyer. Didn't ask me about what's going on. And remember, when someone's struggling, we're more than the moment of the struggle. We are the bullied little boy. We are the lawyer struggling with a marriage. We are the lawyer struggling with estranged siblings or whose parent may be in hospice, whose father may have dementia and is drinking, you know, and who knows what it is or mother and all kinds of things. What are we doing as a profession to be part of a compassionate community to help lawyers at least find a path, see a path, or lay a path at the earliest possible moment. That doesn't mean they'll take it. You can't make someone take it. And let me tell you something. It is okay to call. You're not ratting anyone out. You are doing that person a favor if you call your lawyer's assistance program and give them their names. You don't have to give your own name. You don't. You'd be surprised how many lawyers think you have to, they don't do it because they think it's going to come out that they're the ones who did it. You don't have to give your name. You are doing the profession a favor. You are doing that person a favor. Call your lawyer's assistance program. They are skilled in handling these things. Now, people who have dealt with them always have complaints, blah, blah, blah. No, they're not. It was awful. I mean, anecdotally, there's going to be a range, right? No one can be happy all the time, and especially people struggling when they find out that there is no magic pill, the lawyer's assistance programs don't have a magic pill either for them to get better. It has to be around compassionate community. And there's a part in the book I, you mentioned that you wanted help, but you weren't in a position to accept help. What did you mean by that? When it got really bad and I was finally moving into the stages of change, I really wanted help, but I was too embarrassed and ashamed to ask for it. It was easier just to stay alone in my room or wherever. And uh, unfortunately, that goes through vicious cycles. You want help and you start feeling terrible about this yourself. You're too ashamed to ask for it. How can you break that shame? Well, I can do another line of cocaine. That's when it becomes a really vicious cycle of depression, shame, high, depression, shame, high. But the highs really stop working. The highs change and eventually there is no high. All there is is shame and pain. That's what I meant by that. 
and when we talk about the legal profession as a whole, it, you talk about just the fact that there's certain personality types, that the incidences of, of addiction are much higher in the legal profession, even I think double the rate of doctors, which is also another high stress profession. So it's not just the stress. What are the, the factors that you think contribute to such a high prevalence of this in the legal profession? Well, I think one, we tend to attract a type A personality thinkers who don't like to share vulnerability. So you have three pronged type A personality, work, 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 succeed, succeed, succeed. We're a thinkers. I can think my way out of this. I don't have to tell anyone. I can think my way out of this. And I especially see this in law students. I call it the kick the can syndrome. I'm going to kick this can down the road uh, so I don't have to deal with it now. And I'll think my way out of this. I just haven't put enough thought about this. Tomorrow I will. And then tomorrow never comes. There's a song by that name, right? After Garth Brooks, tomorrow never comes. And then we have, well, vulnerability is a linchpin of recovery. You have to allow yourselves to be vulnerable. And it doesn't mean you have to go crying to your name partner or whatever. You have to get counseling, call TLAP. Safe spaces are okay. How do you allow yourself to cry? Oh, cry, trial lawyer. No, we don't do, you know, we make witnesses cry. We don't cry. And of course I'm stereotyping now and uh, tropes. I'm going into tropes. That's you know, When you write fiction, you go into tropes sometimes. And so th those are the three prongs that I think are the major contributors, contributors, right? Not causes, but the three main uh, contributors to uh, lawyers struggling with addiction who don't seek help. And for somebody who's listening to this and they, let's say they know of another attorney, they've got somebody in their office, for example, that they might believe is, is struggling. How can they be an ally to them? You can be an ally by calling the lawyer's assistance program first. Because I don't, when, when a lawyer calls me one and they work for a small firm, I'm not going to pump sunshine up someone's, you know, into someone and say, if you tell the partner or if you tell someone at the firm, there aren't going to be consequences, job consequences, right? Because the reality is there often are. As, as much as, you know, it should be a health issue and a disease issue, get help, get the help you need. Well, it'll be here when you come back. That's not how life works. But call your lawyer's assistance program and get some guidance. Because let me tell you something. Here's what lawyers never fail to understand. And this or often, I won't say never, often fail to understand. It doesn't get any better. By the time I'm hearing from them, it's bad, whether it's marriage or job. Unless you have the self-awareness to find that spot and recover before it gets to that low point, it's probably going to keep getting lower and lower. And all of a sudden, You've committed malpractice. All of a sudden, you're fired. All of a sudden, you have a grievance. You're before your state bar. Your license is on the line. Or even worse than that, you've wiped out a family on a highway. And uh, call the lawyer's assistance program, you know, so at least they can try. That does, no one can make anyone change. Now, if there's malpractice, if something's going on, you have ethical duties, right? I, I mean, in every state, there are ethical duties if we know something's that are outlined if we know a lawyer isn't engaging in those things, or if we know a lawyer is a danger to his clients in some way. And uh, I'm saying that as a general statement. If those ethical duties aren't triggered, call the lawyer's assistance program. And I know in the book, you, you state that careers can be paused, changed, and redirected, and li but lives cannot be brought back, right? And as long as we're above ground, recovery and redemption are possible. That's right. And I ask that question all the time. It's almost a trick question. I'll ask an audience, what is the only thing required for recovery? What is the prerequisite? And I'll get, you have to want it. Yeah, you have to this, you have to that. No, be above ground, be alive. That is the only prerequisite to a full recovery from addiction. And recovery is possible. A full legal career is possible, even if you're struggling. Really defining a, a legal career is possible. If you're in a position that... Uh, Maybe you've had consequences. We deal with those and we come out of them and we move ahead. I know lawyers who have you know, lost their license temporarily because of substance use issues. They've malpracticed or they've done these things and uh, they've redefined their career and they're thriving. I also know lawyers who haven't, right? They've been disbarred and uh, there are things, let's admit, there are things that if you do while struggling that it's going to be tough. You co-mingle funds, you steal client money. That's a tough sell regardless of what the problem is because a state bar's job is to protect the public. But uh, you still have to get on with your life. You still have to get on with your life. And uh, I know lawyers from all aspects who have gone the spectrum, who have redefined their lives and are doing great. And Brian, as we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney Podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? It means being able to 
perform at your maximum and, and lead others and be a leader to others while performing at your maximum. It is literally impossible to be a game-changing leader, whether you're the head of a law firm or whether you are just a single trial lawyer, if you're struggling, right? It's called the Peter Principle of Addiction. What the Peter Principle is, as many of us know, you work up to your level of incompetence and then you learn more. You keep raising it, right? And you keep advancing and advancing and advancing and being the best leader, the best trial lawyer, the best lawyer you can be. But when we're struggling with addiction, what happens is the fool's gold. Well, I got that great verdict. That's the fool's gold of addiction. The level of competence keeps shrinking and shrinking and shrinking, getting lower. And you keep ducking under it because you got that great verdict. And that's why I call it the fool's gold of addiction of the Peter principle. And eventually you don't get the verdict and you've committed malpractice and you're sued and this and that. Being a leader means doing what you have to do to perform your best. Being a leader means being part of a compassionate community to not look the other way when our colleagues are struggling. I want to give a huge thank you to Brian Cuban for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, what particularly resonated with me was when Brian said that careers can be paused, changed, and redirected. However, lives cannot be brought back. And as long as we are above ground, recovery and redemption are possible. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you can leave a review and share this podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on our interview with Brian Cuban, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. And join us next time for the return of drama researcher, leadership consultant, and New York Times bestselling author, Cy Wakeman. All you legal folks out there, all you lawyers, you get paid to fix people's problems. Like, don't stop that. Just quit doing it in all those unpaid positions. You don't get paid to solve your employees' problems, but you do get paid to solve your clients' problems, right? I had to think, I'm like, but my whole career is fixing people's problems. My counselor's like, easy rule. If they're paying you premium price, fix. Enable them. Do whatever you can. But if you're not getting paid, stop it. That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. <laughs>